As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, we ask that you would deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. By Christ's spirit, may they be our counselors now. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to begin our reading at verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. I think in most pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 674 between the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes, right towards the middle of the Bible. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to chapter 6, verse 20. And so we're going to begin our reading at verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. My son, keep your father's commandment, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a, a teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us. Now, this is another instance of the parents teaching their son the way he ought to go. And teaching in the home sort of comes in, in two forms, positive and negative. Uh, when you teach your children the things that they ought to do, that you want to see them Uh, doing in their lives, and when you warn them against the things they should not do. Um, Tell them what the consequences will be of doing the things that ought not to be done. And throughout the book of Proverbs, the parents have been doing this, uh, both in general ways and in specific ways. And the parents have done this when it comes to their son with sex and marriage. Um, They've told him positively how he should live, that he should be 
preferring his wife to all others and loving her and not seeking for any love outside of that relationship, that that's how he should live. And now the parents are going to warn their son about if he chooses to live in the wrong way, the high price he'll pay for that, Um, the cost that will come from living the wrong way, um, from succumbing to evil. And this instruction is needed for not just for children in Solomon's day, but needed for uh, young people in our day as well. Our culture is often telling our young people that these kinds of sins are really not all that bad, and after all, isn't the most important thing that you be happy. Um, and if, if these kinds of sins are what it takes to be happy, then you have to seek after your happiness. The heart wants what it wants, after all. Um, well, no, what God's word is constantly coming and saying to us is God wants us to be happy. Um, God is not an anti-happiness God, God, far from it. God is the God who wants us to find happiness. He's also the God who knows where happiness is to be found. That it can't be found by walking with the world in the world's ways. Uh, that's the message that begins the Psalms in Psalm 1. Who is the blessed man? Who is the, we might say, happy man is another way of translating that. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to find happiness in walking with his ways. Um, and that's what the parents want for their son. Uh, he want them, wants him to be happy the way God wants him to be happy, by walking in his ways. And so this is what the parents are trying to do for their son And this is instruction that not only this son needs, but all of us uh, need to hear and bring to heart. Uh, They're teaching him the truth regarding adultery. It teaches us the truth regarding, first, the promise of wisdom. That's what the parents hold out to their son. First, the promise of wisdom. Then the protections from evil that it offers. Uh, The promise of wisdom, the protections from evil, and it closes with the price of folly the price that will be paid if wisdom is not listened to. And that's how we want to think about this instruction together this morning. The promise of wisdom, the protections from evil, and the price of folly. Uh, The promise of wisdom functions here in the way it's functioned many times in the book of Proverbs. There's been a general returning to a theme over and over again as we've gone through the book of Proverbs, and that general theme is this. If you keep wisdom, wisdom will keep you. If you watch over wisdom, wisdom will watch over you. If you don't forsake wisdom when you, in the learning, then when you need to apply it, it will not forsake you. Uh, that's the general promise that's been held out. And what the parents are doing is saying when it comes to adultery, that general promise can be very specifically applied to this sin. Um, if you keep wisdom, it will watch over you in this way particularly. Uh, We read from the Ten Commandments, and we know that God specifically forbids adultery. And God's law speaks that word carefully. And then what did God say the families were to do with that law? They were to regularly put the law before their children. Um, Remember what God said in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And God didn't just mean that literally that they should do that, but he meant it figuratively. How should the the teaching of God's word function in the life of the family? We should never miss an occasion to be catechizing. Never miss an occasion to be teaching about God's truth. And why should we never miss any occasion for it? Because the world certainly won't miss any occasion for it. The world is always catechizing its own version of the truth, which is a lie. And so what's calling for God's people to be constantly teaching these things to themselves, to be spending time on it. And what was the hope? Well, one commentator put it this way, that you would memorize and learn these laws so that they are permanently impressed on your essential mental and spiritual being that prompts every action. That they would be impressed on your essential mental and spiritual being that prompts every action. What's a simple way of saying that? That they would be impressed on your heart. That's what the parents want when they say, bind it on your heart um, so that it's there. And the parents are hoping that by doing this with their children, with continuing to repeat the law, that they would learn it so that even when the parents aren't there, it will still speak. Right? As, as we read here in verse 22, that when you walk, they will lead you. And when you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Right? That the word of God would continue to guide them and continue to watch over them and continue to counsel them. Uh, that the word would live in their hearts. That's where God's word needs to live. It needs to live in our hearts. Uh, so that we learn it well enough that we respond uh, with that word that we've spent so much time with. That it's speaking to us. That's a wonderful thing to think about the law doing that for us. Speaking to us and guiding us and watching over us. And when we need it, correcting us. Right? That's what the, the father goes on to say about what this commandment is. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Um, Whose commandment are we talking about when we talk about that the commandment is a lamp? Well, it's God's commandment, but who did the commandment come from? It came from the Father in verse 20. Your Father's commandment. And when the Scriptures say that the teaching is a light, whose teaching is it? Well, it's God's teaching, But where did it come from? The teaching came from the mother in verse 20. God works his word through the family so that they might learn it, so that it might be a light and a lamp, showing them the way that they should go, warning them against the way they should not go, and when they're going the wrong way, correcting them. Right? The reproofs uh, of discipline are the way to life. We need to be corrected by God's word. There's not one of us who doesn't need a course correction from time to time in life. And that's what the word of God does for us. It delivers us from going in the wrong way and helps us to continue on the road that leads to life. 
The commandments of God, the teaching of God are the lamps and the lights we need to not go astray. And what a wonderful promise that we have that when we are going astray, the word of God will guide us back to the path that leads to life. And we are particularly blessed to live in this time and place because God has spoken to us in these last days, not just by by servants of his word, but by the word himself, incarnate, come in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ himself has spoken to us, has implanted the word in us by his spirit so that we are guided by him, that he is the one who is speaking to us and he is the one who is watching over us and he is the one who is talking to us. He is the one who is reproving us so that we might not leave the path of life. It's a wonderful blessing to have this promise of wisdom operating in the life of God's people. Because in this promise of wisdom, we also find the protections from evil that we need in this world. Uh, Because there are evil things in the world. Um, and And the parents, again, are warning particularly against the evils of adultery that threaten in the world. And why do we need protections from evil in wisdom? Well, because there is evil all around us. Parents say there's evil around us that we need protection from, and there's evil within us that we need protection from. What is the evil around us that the Son in particular needs protection from? Well, verse 24 tells us it is the evil woman, uh, the adulteress, We've been introduced to her before a number of times in Proverbs so far. Chapter 2 introduced us to her as the covenant breaker. She's faithless to her husband. Um, She flatters with her tongue. She deceives. She flutters her eyelashes as a way of seducing. She's entirely presented to us as a femme fatale, beautiful but deadly. And it's clear what she wants to do. What is her goal in doing what she does? It's, it's spelled out clearly for us at the end of verse 26. The married woman hunts down a precious life. She's hunting down lives. That's what she's out to do. That's the evil that's going on around us. That's the evil that the son has to be aware of. She is actively trying to work destruction on unsuspecting people. And it's not just the evil around him that the son has to be aware of, but the parents say, you know, the other danger is we're carrying around an evil within us. Now, the Bible doesn't teach, as some cultures do, that you know, it's, it's these women who are always dragging down these innocent men. But that's not what the Bible is saying at all. The Bible is being realistic about where the dangers lie. There are dangers outside of us, but there's also a danger we carry around within us. And what is the danger that the parents point to in the son? It's that she captures you as a hunter, but how does she capture you? By your own desire. Right? Verse 25 makes that very clear. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. What is, what is the danger that lies within us? It's our own desire. That's the evil against which we must be defended, against covetousness, desiring something that doesn't belong to us. 
offer. That's what coveting is. It's setting your desire on something that belongs to someone else. Um, And the son needs to be warned about that covetous desire that lives in his heart and how that covetous desire works. So that's another way of saying coveting. Another way of translating the 10th commandment would be to say in part, do not set your desire on your neighbor's wife. That's when things begin to go wrong. And that's how covetousness works. The desire springs up for something that's not your own. And then you nurture it. Or you nurse that desire. You keep thinking about it. Um, You keep cherishing that desire for something that doesn't belong to you. And if you do that long enough, you won't stop until you've fulfilled that desire. That was the tragic story of King David when he fell into the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. We can see that covetousness playing out in how the story is recorded for us. What does 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 4 tell us? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. There is the desire arising in his heart. And instead of walking away from it, what does he do? He begins to nurture it. He begins to nurse it. And that scene in what we read next. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Right? He's not running away from that desire. He's nurturing it. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So now he knows this is an adulterous desire that he's nurturing against the wife of another who doesn't belong to him. And how does he react? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. He he nurtured his desire until he could fulfill it. And that adultery led to unwanted pregnancy. It led to lies. It eventually led to the murder of her husband. And as a consequence, they lost the child of their adultery. Um, It gave birth to death. Exactly what James warns of in James 1, 14 through 16. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is the path that that desire will walk. And so what is the message of the parents to their son? If you really want to be protected, what do you need to protect? Where will that desire arise? Do not desire her beauty in your heart. That's where the desire arises. So what needs to be protected? The heart. And what protects the heart? Verse 21 tells us, wisdom. What does wisdom do for us when the evil without, without speaks to us, when she flatters with the tongue, and when the evil inside of us begins to speak to us? Go out after that thing that you desire. What do we need? We need another voice to speak. We need the voice of wisdom to speak to our hearts. And say, no, 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 no. That's not where that will lead. 
that will lead to death. That will not lead to happiness. That will lead to death. You need to walk away from that. That's why we want God's word living in our hearts so that we listen to it when it speaks so that it will crowd out that other speech. Because that's the kind of way wisdom talks. Um, That's the kind of wonderful active language of verse 22. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. That talk with you is preach to you. Um, It's the loud, enthusiastic, emotionally laden speech. Now, I don't do that all the time when I preach because I'm Hungarian and I lose my emotions pretty easily. So I try to kind of keep myself in my pocket a little bit so that I don't sob all over you. Um, We're an emotional people. We can't help it. Um, So... Maybe I don't always do this, but that's, this is what preaching is. It's bringing God's word with that passion to say, you have to live, why would you die? It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire, right? So that that wisdom really is talking to you and pleading with you to walk the other way. When we get on further in Proverbs, we'll see wisdom talking like that. She gets up on a roof and yells, um, wisdom speaks that way. The Lord speaks that way. His voice thunders. And that's what we want is to spend so much time dwelling on the word of God that when the evil speaks from outside of us or the evil speaks within us, the voice of our God might thunder and say, no, 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 no. Don't choose death. Choose life. Don't choose the pain that will come from this sin. Don't believe the lie. Listen to me when I tell you the truth about where this will end up. And choose life. What does the voice of Christ speaking to us want us to do? He wants us to live. And he wants us to be happy. He wants us to rejoice. And the lie that sin tells us all the time is you can have the joy without the pain. That you can have the sin without the misery. Well, wisdom comes and says, no, no, it's always a package deal. It might not bring, bring pain right away. But in the terms of spiritual, the spiritual mathematics of the thing, you can't have the joy without the pain. The joy will fade and the pain will remain. Talk to David and Bathsheba mourning over the infant son they lost and tell them that there's no pain in the sin, that it was worth it. Tell that to David when his heart is broken by what Nathan the prophet says to him about the way he's conducted himself as king that's led to the murder of one of his mighty men, his band of brothers. Tell them that there's there's their joy and no pain and see if they believe you. That's what sin does. Any joy that's founded, that will fade and the pain will remain. You can't have the sin without the misery. And our God knows it, and that's what he's trying to keep us away from. That's what wisdom is saying to us. But our God wants us to live and wants us to be happy and wants us to find that joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, the joy that doesn't fade. That's what wisdom speaks to us. That's the voice that's the best defense the best protection against the evil 
that we find in this world. That's the voice we need to bind in our hearts by faith and spend time listening to so that it speaks to us. Because the price is too high. That's where the parents end by saying, if you really think you can just do this and it won't cost you anything, you have to really understand the price of this folly. The promise of wisdom is held out. The protections from evil are held out. But then the parents say, but if you won't listen to any of that, know where this will end. Know the price that will be paid for this kind of folly. That's what wisdom does too. It uses, it's a light and a lamp to show us where the path of evil really goes. Where the destination ends. What is the cost that will be paid for adultery by one who does not listen to the voice of God's wisdom. Like one commentator used three words, severe, inevitable, and unending. The price is severe, the punishment is inevitable, and the pain is unending. That's the picture that's painted for us here. The price is severe. What is the adulteress after? Nothing short of your life. That's the cost. That's the price. The father says, you know, compare the evil of prostitution with the evil of adultery. They're both evil. He said, you know, one evil, its cost up front is relatively cheap. It can be had for a loaf of bread. You know what the cost of this evil is? It's your life. She will hunt down a precious life. Um, It's your life that you'll lose. Um, They're both evils. That's not what the Father's saying. The Father's not trying to excuse the one in in the face of the other. They're both evils, but why is adultery a worse evil? Because it involves breaking the marriage vow, wronging a spouse, destroying a home, and a debt is out of control. It costs a precious life. The price is severe, and the punishment is inevitable. How does the father communicate to his son the punishment is inevitable for this kind of sin? Well, he says, can you carry fire and not get burned? Can you take the hot coals, hot glowing coals out of your your charcoal grill and put it in your shirt and carry it without burning yourself? I remember hearing a story of a baseball player once who was going out to, on the town and he noticed that his shirt wasn't ironed correctly so he plugged in the iron and thought well I don't really have time to change so I'll just iron it while I'm wearing it and he burned himself through the shirt um, I played baseball and baseball players are not known for being the sharpest knives in the drawer um, but even that's kind of silly right what, all, all of you laugh because you know what would happen if you tried to iron your shirt you're wearing you'd burn yourself right through the shirt Um, What would try to happen if you tried to carry coals, hot coals out of the barbecue in your hand? You'd burn yourself. What would happen if you tried to walk over hot coals with your feet and bare feet? You'd burn yourself. Right? The father's teaching his son an age-old lesson that we all know. Play with fire and you get burned. And what the father is saying, the punishment for this sin is just as inevitable as it is to carry fire or to walk on it. If you play with fire, you get burned. You can't touch it and not get burned. And the Father says the same is true of your neighbor's wife. 
You can't touch her and go unpunished. Um, the punishment is inevitable, and the pain of that punishment is unending. Uh, where does that end up? Unlike the pain of a burn that might eventually go away, the pain of punishment is unending. And the last comparison the father makes is to a thief who steals because of his hunger. And he compares that thief committing that crime to the adulterer. So let's compare the thief that steals to satisfy his appetites and the adulterer who commits that sin to satisfy his appetites. What is the difference between the two? He says, you know, for the thief, there's some sympathy. And there's a remedy. There's some sympathy for a thief who steals because he's starving. It doesn't mean it's not a crime. It doesn't mean he won't pay for it. But there's at least he's not despised for it. There's sympathy, and there's a remedy, right? If the thief is caught, what can he do? Um, He can pay sevenfold, verse 31 says. He can give all the goods of his house. He can at least try to make restitution for his crime. The thief at least has those options. He has sympathy, and he has a remedy. What, What will there be for a person who commits adultery? For his appetite takes the wife of another. Father said, you know, for you, if you did that, there's no sympathy. And there's no remedy. There's no sympathy for a man who takes another man's wife. What does the, how does the community respond to that in verse 33? He will get wounds and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. It's, it's indelible, right? He wounds that bring dishonor and disgrace. It's, imper- it's permanent. It won't be wiped away. There's no sympathy from the community. And much less should you ex- suspect, expect any sympathy from the aggrieved husband. Are you going to get any sympathy from him, from the jealous husband? No, no sympathy. The day of justice from the enraged husband he sinned against. What will verse 34 say? Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will not spare when he takes revenge. That, that's not just private revenge. I think here is a sense of justice. When he takes you to court, he's not going to give you any quarter. He's going to ask from the judge exactly the worst thing he can ask. You're going to get no sympathy from the husband, and there's no remedy. There's no fine you can pay to make it right. Not like the thief who could pay sevenfold all the goods of his house and try to make it right. Can, can the adulterer make it right? No. Verse 35 says the husband will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. There's no sympathy. There's no remedy. The ruin that the adulterer brings on himself is total. That's what verse 32 says. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The parents are trying to pitch it in hot for the son so that he understands the full price of getting this wrong. So he understands the great cost of this sin. Now again, with with Proverbs, there's always this temptation for someone to come and say, well, you know, that's just not the world we live in. 
um, it does, these sins don't ruin you. They don't ruin you in the community. Um, people have gotten over this. We don't have these kind of Puritan, Victorian sort of morals anymore. Um, it, it just doesn't work like this. That's not the society we live in. Um, and I think the commentator is right. He says, that says more about the society than it does about the sin. Just because this, these sins are now widely accepted in our world doesn't mean our world is right. It means our world has sunk to that level of blindness and depravity that we don't think of these things as very sinful. But the Bible knew times just like our times. The Bible's not naive about the times in which people live. Um, the Bible knew times like our times and knew people who had morals like our society's morals. Jeremiah wrote about people like that. Um, we're almost to the end, but Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 5, 7 through 9, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? Declares the Lord, shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? The next chapter, he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. That's a description of our society, isn't it? They don't know how to blush. Uh, the sins that we tolerate get worse and worse, and we don't know how to blush. And it does no good to pretend that the sins tolerated by the world aren't sins and that the attitudes tolerated by the world aren't what they are. God says very clearly what they are. Woe to those who call good evil and who call evil good, who call darkness light and light darkness. He says that clearly to the world and he speaks clearly to us. What does he say to us? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love the Puritan who said, Sin is never the better because it is in fashion. Nor will this plea hold at the last day that we did as most did. Um, that will not suffice. The price of folly has to be understood. That's not to say there is no forgiveness from our God. That's not to say that God's law can't do what it did for David and break him over his sin and bring him back to a knowledge of his own sinfulness so that he would have true repentance in his heart and call out to God for forgiveness and receive it. That's not to say we cannot receive forgiveness of sins, but David knew that that sin was costly we should never operate as Christians as if it's a small thing to sin and I can always get forgiveness for it afterwards. There has to be brokenheartedness for sin. There has to be a recognition of how badly we've gone wrong. That's what true repentance looks like. It's the repentance David shows in Psalm 51 verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is someone who is broken over his sin, who doesn't try to call it something it's not, who's realistic with it, who understands by God's grace what forgiveness costs. It's free to me, but it was not freely given or won. It cost our Savior a lot. Right? We are delivered from wounds because he was wounded in our place. We are delivered from dishonor and disgrace because he was dishonored and disgraced in our place. We are delivered from destruction because he was destroyed in our place. And so while there is forgiveness in the mercy he holds out to us, I hope we never treat sin as a common thing or God's forgiveness as a common thing. We always remember what it cost the sinless Savior to purchase us out of the sin that we've gotten into. But if we're broken, if we've come to that point of truly being sorrowful over our sins, I hope that we'll be assured that we have a God who is willing to forgive. God forgave the guilt of David's sin when he called out for help. But what does God want? He wants to spare us that pain. Spare us that brokenheartedness and show us a different way to walk. That we might not have to go through the pain of that transgression and sin. And so may we all know true repentance for our sins and find Christ by faith. And may we walk by the light of his word on the way that leads to life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its help to us and its warning to us. We pray, Lord, that we would truly confess our sins and seek our grace and help only in Jesus Christ. That we would never treat our sin as a common thing or forgiveness as something just that we can always ask without really working and pursuing holiness. That we might constantly remember what it costs the sinless Savior to purchase our freedom. And that that might create a desire in us not to sin against you and to walk in the ways that you've commanded. Thank you for showing us the way of life. Thank you for reproving us when we go wrong that we might stay on the way. Thank you for the forgiveness that we can find in Jesus Christ through true repentance and faith in him. Lord, help us to walk in ways that are pleasing in your sight, that glorify your name, that lead to happiness and joy that lasts. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.